This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Happy Valentine's Day. It's midwinter. Official spring is five weeks away. Our days are still quite a bit shorter than our nights, and the temperatures remain wintry, enticing us to stay in more, or at very least, come in from our outside work earlier than we might in midsummer. It is a more cerebral season in my house, with knitting projects in process. It's a time of perusing, and sometimes making, interesting hearty stew recipes. And there's a good deal of reading to be done. Books, seed catalogs, garden journals, and garden writers at work in this world. The garden world as a whole seems to take this season as one that is well adapted to gardeners' continuing education and community building. A winter term in the year-round school that is what it is to be a gardener. Full of botanic garden lecture series, region-wide flower and garden shows, conferences, and symposia, all starting up just in advance of spring almost as if to help tide us over to spring. For example, the Wisconsin Garden and Landscape Expo is February 8th through the 10th. The Northwest Flower and Garden Show, which is always epic in Seattle, is February 20th to the 24th. The Connecticut Flower and Garden Show is February 21st to the 24th, and the famed Philadelphia Flower Show is March 2nd to the 10th. These are full of green plants, plants, people, speakers, demonstrations, floral displays, plant and seed sales, and show gardens to bolster our creative imaginations at the end of this wintry, spare, contemplative time. I find gardeners and naturalists to be remarkably ardent, self-directed, lifelong learners, and I thought I'd take a few episodes to dive into that a little bit. For this first episode in this casual exploration of the many ways that gardeners gather, learn, and grow together, we head to New York and a 28-acre public garden and cultural center in the Bronx overlooking the Hudson River and the Palisades. We are entering Wave Hill. The mission of this now public garden is to celebrate the artistry and legacy of its gardens and landscapes, to preserve its magnificent views, and to explore human connections to the natural world through programs in horticulture, education, and the arts. Beginning its life as a country house estate in the mid-1800s, the house and grounds were deeded to the city of New York by its owners in 1960, and Wave Hill remains one of 33 city-owned cultural institutions. It is well known for the beauty of its site, its remarkable planting and plant collections, and its annual educational offerings. We're joined today via Skype to hear more about this from Louis Bauer, Senior Director of Horticulture. Welcome, Louis. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I want to start a little bit with the Wave Hill as it exists today. Tell us a little bit about its current incarnation, and then we'll go back into some of its greater history, Louis. We have been a cultural institution for a little over 50 years. Mm. We have sort of three spheres uh, of operation in in executing our mission to to bring man and nature together. They are first the gardens and horticulture with greenhouses and the revitalized gardens that were made by its private owners. Then we have education, which was there from the very beginning of Wave Hill's public life. And that program educates over 10,000 school children a year. Mm. And third, we have an arts uh, component uh, focused mostly on emerging artists whose subject is the relationship between man and nature in some way and some performing arts to go with that, like music and dance. Mm. And so of the 28 acres and the the gardens that surround the the house and other structures, are they all under garden cultivation? No, they're not. Uh, we have a, a very varied site because of the 
it's called Wave Hill because the landscape from from the Hudson River when it first became a country house looked like uh, a wave cresting uh, toward the river. Mm -hmm. And so we have some very steep areas that are native plant woodlands, and we've had a, a long history of forest uh, ecology that takes almost half the property. And so about half of it is horticultural landscape and half uh, urban woodland. Mm. And can you describe, um, it's winter, it's it's a quiet and yet very beautiful time of year in such a garden. Can you describe the gardens for listeners who may not have seen them in, in sort of an overview, Louis? I can. Uh, the greenhouses are at the center of the property. The, the sort of entrance to our tall center house, which we call the palm house, had been during the estate days a rose garden, so it was laid out with eight rectilinear beds. When it became a public place, uh, competing with the grand rose gardens of other public gardens, that garden became uh, eight mixed border beds. So it is a kind of old-fashioned flower garden, perennial garden, uh, mixed border garden. Behind the greenhouses, there are some glass houses that were never rebuilt, and their foundations hold an herb garden, a Mediterranean dry garden, and an alpine terrace, which step up the hill uh, toward the, our second sort of most intense horticultural area, which is the wild garden, mm -hmm. based on a kind of William Robinson mm -hmm. idea of mm -hmm. using plants not in their hybrid or cultivated selection, uh, but in their wild form, mixed in a cosmopolitan way to simulate landscapes from around the world. Uh, so it's a very contorted, complex garden uh, that culminates with a little gazebo at the highest point on the property. And to many people's surprise, that's the best place to see the Hudson River and the cliffs across the river. Mm. Beyond that, we have an aquatic garden, which is probably our most placid and geometric garden, uh, a rectilinear reflecting pool from the estate days, surrounded on three sides by pergola and the fourth side by hedges. Outside of that, uh, a more naturalistic shade border, which goes to the north perimeter of our property and continues into a conifer collection. And that joins the woodland, which makes the rest of our property perimeter. Mm -hmm. And those are the main garden areas. We happen to have uh, an underground recreation building that was constructed during the estate days, which has a, a lawn on its roof, which is our lower terrace. Um, as I said earlier, we have an interesting topography, mm -hmm. including some man-made uh, interest like that. And adjacent to that is a little uh, relatively new, small, formal native plant garden, uh, since it is surrounded on three sides by woodland. It made sense to have that be a native plant garden. Nice. How new is the native plant garden? It was made in the 1990s when uh, the swimming pool for the estate was finally demolished and filled in. And because some, some stone architecture remains around its perimeter. It made sense for it to be formal, but we wanted it to be native plants. So we have this interesting hybrid uh, that doesn't usually go together, but we have made it work. And uh, I think a lot of people like seeing that because it's a way that uh, people with townhouses and urban yards can see that, yes, you can have a small space with native plants mm -hmm. that is livable. Yeah, and not isn't isn't just a, a prairie restoration. Mm -hmm. And I think that really starts to get us into some of the educational aspects of Wave Hill and its prominent role as being a model for innovative planting and horticultural knowledge. Right there is that idea that if you can model a formality with native plants, you speak to a completely different audience than I think 
the sort of foundational native plant people um, might might be, and and that ability to expand the conversation about what we can do with plants and and how we can live with them, I think, is so important. I I agree. It's a more modern way of thinking. It it wasn't top of the mind in in the first decades of the garden here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that everyone working here uh, from the beginning were kind of plant nuts, mm-hmm. plant geeks. Um, and it's still a little that way with native plants. We're, we're not Zionists uh, about <laughs> it. <laughs> but we recognize the value of having parts of the property that, that reflected purely native flora. And, and I think that anyone having a tour of, of the gardens here from the very beginning would, would be pointed to the native plants that are in all of our garden areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so it wasn't a difficult leap to say, okay, this little small area, which is surrounded by our woodland, where we wouldn't want some, some aggressive plant that we've introduced escape, uh, we will we will make this little formal garden, which maybe 20 years ago we wouldn't have thought to do as a native garden. Yeah, yeah. So that takes us, you've segued us very nicely into the early history. I find it fascinating that the original history of the house is a country house garden. There are quite a few in in the area uh, where you are, but that this one, come 1960, was deeded to the city to become a cultural institution. Give us a little bit of history on um, why that might have been the decision of the owners and those early years that you mentioned in terms of how the nonprofit was formed, how the mission was was developed and has has grown over the years, Louis. Well, I I, I admit I wasn't here for those years <laughs> and <laughs> when the property became a city-owned public institution, it it was deeded to the city in 1960 and I believe for five years, the city's parks department managed the property. And because neighbors who wanted to see something good and public serving happen on the property, they formed a private foundation. And their timing was perfect because at the same time, some other institutions were making the same kinds of alliances with the city. And it changed from city parks management to cultural institutions management, which uh, was the arrangement with these other groups to run a cultural institution under the management of a private foundation on city property. Mm -hmm. So we're very lucky that we had some smart neighbors and some sharp uh, political minds on on the board of our founders because something very different could have happened. And even after that arrangement was settled, there was, there was still a lot of floundering about exactly what our mission would be and what, it, what the scope of it might be. There, were, there was always something of the arts and environment and horticulture in the mix, but whether one was stronger than the other and what direction they might take took a number of years of years to figure out and and I've seen the same struggle in some in some younger organizations mm-hmm. so I yeah. I have have some firsthand knowledge seeing what that struggle is like it's not easy but we have made a wonderful marriage between those three components of our mission now and um I'll be glad to talk more about that if you're interested yes very interested I think that it is such a wonderful historical lesson in many ways uh, about the nature of the the living dynamic of a nonprofit getting started, especially one that has a public mission. And it is part of the developing life of, of such an organization, especially if it's going to go on to thrive, I think. You're right. And like a garden, there are so many things that influence what that direction takes, mm-hmm. exactly what kind of support emerges and what its community, what what its surrounding community is like and um, 
the political environment and all sorts of things come into play and and they change a little over time and so we change a little too there were there were a couple of decades when most of the arts component of of the organization was comprised of large well-known artists putting big sculptures in the landscape but as the horticulture uh, took hold and gained some reputation that phase of the art component of our mission shifted and now I think is in a really wonderful place where our curators at Wave Hill have formed relationships and made connections with the artists in New York City, which of course uh, is a pretty rich environment and and they now focus on things that really match the environmental education and the horticulture uh, components of Wave Hill. So it's not an imposition on the landscape. It's very sympathetic with it. We inform one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, as head of horticulture, <laughs> I can say that the artists are very respectful of things that do happen outside. They're not you, Richard Serra, giant steel sculptures. They're very thoughtful and provocative, and um, and we collaborate often. Yeah. So talk about the the evolution of the environmental education and horticulture program, because I think this is also one of the important areas, especially with horticulture in, in a changing natural and physical environment in our world and in the increasing need for for good and accurate and um, inclusive educational outreach to to the public, that all of our garden institutions, as we know them, are are adapting and trying to respond to increasing need. It feels like there are two things that have been ex- especially successful in uh, in our school school education programs. One is the forest project, which came very early in our history. And so it has 40 some years of experience um, teaching high school age students primarily, and now some pre-college students during the summer in forest ecology Mm. and basic sciences uh, for environmental education. they collaborate with, they have collaborated with at least two uh, nearby colleges. So they have uh, a relationship not only with accreditation, accreditation and, uh, and access to science teachers, but, um, but also laboratories and other sites than our little 12 acre forest Mm -hmm. Um, collaborating with the colleges gives them access to some of the nearby parkland which helps expand the scope of what they can do with students the second part of environmental education is a more in indirect kind of education and it, it is a program called family art project it's a free program every saturday and sunday that is for a younger audience with their parents Mm. and it is a kind of fun art with a focus on learning something about the environment or horticulture built into projects that look like sort of uh, arts and crafts but really have some deeper uh, message. Can you give us an example of maybe one of your recent family art events and and what like what that looks like exactly, tangibly? One of the longest running and most popular uh, happens on a a weekend we call Honey Weekend because it has not just the family art project, but sort of is uh, orchestrated with adult education and garden tours and other aspects that highlight what honeybees do for us. Uh, And so the the children learn how the bees communicate and they make a bee vest and a bee hat and they go outside and they march around the garden and do bee things. (laughs) (laughs) 
How does that sound? That sounds good. I love bee things. So there's a lot of sound and a lot of wi- flapping of right. bee wings and wiggling and, of bee butts. I would wiggling. imagine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a fabulous. And so the the school programs. Do you know what what school districts you are drawing from uh, that that get to take part in these programs? Well, as you know, the borough of the Bronx is a very big borough, mm-hmm. and I think uh, they draw students from even beyond the Bronx, but uh, but from all over the Bronx, yeah. which, which has a number of, of neighborhoods that uh, have been underserved with this kind of opportunity mm-hmm. over the years. And uh, Wave Hill, I think, has done a very respectable part in helping to change that. Great. The educational outreach is is so important, in my opinion, and especially including whole families, I think is a wonderful bridge to reaching communities and making horticultural literacy part of our world. When you look at your horticultural program, give me a similar uh, kind of history of its evolution over time from those early developmental years to, to now and how you have are clearly adapting all the time? Well, our, our horticultural education is, is our, our gardens, we hope, pick the interest uh, of visitors. Uh, we do label some plants. We're not a botanic garden, mm-hmm. but we do have public programs that help people take a, a little deeper look at natives or at alpines or at uh, learning how to do some garden tasks. But we have a very big neighbor called New York Botanical Garden, (laughs) just a couple of miles away, and they have a very highly developed horticulture education program. So it's not that we're not interested, but uh, we have found our niches to fill. And uh, actually, there's a a bit of new interest in offering a little more adult-aimed programs in horticulture that are still different from the New York Botanical Garden Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that we haven't tried in a little while. Part of that is is uh, motivated by the fact that we have uh, a book coming out soon about how we do and maintain our gardening here at Wave Hill, and and it, it reveals some of of our techniques and some of the things that over history we have decided we should share with the public. And I, we're hoping that that might generate a, a little bit of uh, change in the offerings we've had in horticultural education. Mm-hmm. When is the book coming out and who is publishing it? Timber Press is publishing it. We expect it to be out in the fall. Nature into Art, The Gardens ah, of Wave Hill. Love it. I love it. Some of the school programs do incorporate horticultural education. They walk through the gardens and they learn what gardeners do and what gardens mean uh, for urban life or or for anyone's life for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think we're about to, ha- to turn a little bit of new leaf on the things we offered for more sophisticated gardeners. Louis Bauer is the Senior Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, a public house and garden in New York City's borough of the Bronx. Its 28 acres of gardens and woodlands are an education in themselves, and the garden staff supplement the garden's educational opportunities with twice-weekly guided tours, with weekly family programs, and with their annual winter lecture series underway now. We'll be right back to hear more. Stay with us.
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, we're kicking off a winter series exploring some of the ways and means by which we as gardeners undertake our own lifelong continuing education, the ways we gather, learn, and grow together. For this first in the series, we're speaking with Louis Bauer, Senior Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill in New York City's borough of the Bronx. We're back after a break to hear more. Welcome back. When you say your horticulture niche, describe what characterizes the Wave Hill horticultural program niche. Our our programs are limited. <laughs> our our gardens are a different story. Our gardens are very sophisticated and and well established and and respected. But how we explain them to the public has been mostly left up to the visitor to explore on mm-hmm. their own. When you say explore on their own, not all plants are labeled. What kind of interpretive material or uh, what kind of support do you have for – because I think the what I'm hearing is that the backbone of your horticulture program – are the gardens and the plantings as they exist. And so how how do people make the best use of those, Louis? Twice a week we give a tour of the garden by well-trained uh, garden guides or docents. Uh, they know the plants very well. Charlie Day, who is our sort of nomenclature and taxonomy expert, uh, gives them updates bi-monthly on what's in bloom. And not only that, but we're gardening in the garden 365 days a year, so there's always a gardener here. Mm-hmm. So someone who is really curious and and doesn't happen to be on one of the guided tours of the gardens can find a gardener to ask a question. And I certainly get them by email and, and other ways, too, uh, to answer. And we do label... We, actually, Charlie Day's uh, other responsibility is changing the labels in the garden. It's true that not everything is labeled, but we do try to keep labels changing on a on a rotating basis for plants that are are making their show or being conspicuous. Yeah, yeah, which is part of the fun of visiting a garden over and over again, right, is to see what what is out, what is looking different, what has changed its color, what has come into bloom, gone into seed, all of those things. Constantly changing. Yeah. So when you say we and us and garden 365 days a year, describe your horticultural team there and it, who makes it up and uh, their ongoing contributions gladly well I'm senior director of horticulture I started as a gardener in 1994 and I've been director for five years mm. I have an assistant director uh, who who uh, recently departed for North Carolina, so I have an open position. <laughs> good, good to know. Ha- Make note out there. <laughs> I have a part-time administrative uh, helper named Marilyn Young. I have seven gardeners. Uh, Jolene Scarborough takes care of the wild garden. Susanna Stritzera takes care of the alpine house. Jen Simino takes care of our pergola gardens and aquatic garden. Uh, Shane Pritchett takes care of the little formal native garden. And uh, and the cafe terrace, which has an intense uh, summer bedding scheme. I have Christopher Bivens, who takes care of the herb and dry garden. I have Harnik Singh, who takes care of what is kind of our front yard, the flower garden in front of the conservatory. It is the first garden people see when they arrive at, at the property, mm-hmm. the flower garden with the, with the conservatory in the background. Mm-hmm. And I have one gardener position open. And do you have, uh, do you have a, a core of volunteers by chance? Well, 
I, I do have a core of volunteers, and it never outnumbers the gardeners. Um, and it is usually primarily four or five people who have kind of regular assignments and regular hours. Mm -hmm. And and it has been like that for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, I have four interns. Mm -hmm. And we didn't touch on this part of education, but uh, our John Nally intern program started in 1988. And every season, I have four interns from the 1st of April till Thanksgiving. And... They spend a couple of weeks being oriented to work on the grounds with myself and my assistant director. And then they rotate between the gardeners, working in their relatively autonomous parts of the garden. Uh, and a part of at least one day a week, working as a team, uh, sometimes with myself, sometimes with all the horticulture crew um, as we take on projects in the in the more general landscape that's outside the sort of individual areas. And where do the interns come from and where are they heading? Is there is there a kind of MO on that? There is. Uh, first, where they come from is all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, although, obviously, there are almost always a, a couple of interns who have just finished some environmental education or some formal horticulture program, but there are usually a couple of people from other areas, often from a career change. The program is established well enough that I do get a lot of applicants, so I have the great luxury of getting a lot of applicants who already have found some way to uh, get a little experience with public horticulture or to be able to explain why they're interested in public horticulture, uh, at least tell me what their favorite public garden or park is, uh, and, and, and also almost always someone who's already had a little experience with hands in the ground. Now, sometimes that is just a little, uh, and, uh, and we, I find someone who who I believe has aptitude and the passion for it. Um, but we give them that next step. And a lot of our NALI interns over the past 30-some um, years have gone on to, to careers as head gardeners or directors of horticulture, both at public and at significant private gardens. So we're mm. kind of proud of uh, our track record. And yeah. recently we've been sharing, uh, I should say I've been sharing the experiences that I have and that my interns have with some of the other gardens with similar programs in the region. So mm -hmm. we're kind of forming a loose association of similar training programs. Uh, and we've been exchanging uh, not just ideas, but exchanging gardeners for a day or a week wow. so that that broadens their experience further. And there is nothing like practical mentorship and apprenticeship to teach you the ins and outs of horticulture. There's plenty to learn from a book and research, but actually being on the ground with someone who knows what they're doing, there's just nothing like it. You're right. That's that's the greatest uh, strength of of our program and and the ones at places like Chanticleer and Stonecrop, mm -hmm. which are not too far from us. They always do have. We still push a little component of of research. We have after the interns cut grass on Thursday mornings, they have a break by doing a little roundtable report on plants of a certain group, aquatic uh, plants or alpine plants. Nice. Uh, and so that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. And how many years has the internship been in place? It has been in, I've, I, 32 years. Uh, yeah. I may have to check that number. Yeah, but that's, that's <laughs> a significant number of interns off into the world with greater, greater knowledge and experience. So that's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. We we feel it is, and and it's getting recognition from the the patrons who help our institution run. Uh, we raise mm -hmm. a lot of our funds 
from private individuals and this internship's history is beginning to catch their attention too and receive more support, so it's strong. Nice. That's good to hear. Louis Bauer is the Senior Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, the public house and garden in New York City's borough of the Bronx, one of 33 cultural institutions owned by the city of New York and one of five public gardens in that group. Wave Hill is in the midst of its annual winter lecture series. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back from a break in this first episode of a winter series exploring some of the ways we as gardeners continue our own educations throughout our life, the way we gather, learn, and grow together. Today we're speaking with Louis Bauer, Senior Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill in New York City's borough of the Bronx. Welcome back. I know another aspect of your public outreach is uh, an annual lecture series around this time of year every year. Tell us a little bit about this year's lecture series, and then we'll, we'll talk about the history and kind of catalyst for that. Well, I have to say, Martha, who couldn't join us today, wrote something wonderful about the lectures this year, and she wrote, this ongoing series curated by Wave Hill's Senior Director of Horticulture and the Friends of Horticulture Committee is devoted to garden design and the meaning of our interactions with plants in the natural world. And and beyond that, she talks in her introduction to this year's series about how a small and intimate garden like ours is embedded in a much wider world, and that was what we intended the three speakers this year to, to help explore. Mm, okay, so tell us about those speakers. Well, the first uh, happened a, a week ago. It was Colin Cabot. His father and mother uh, founded Stonecrop, and mm-hmm. his mother spent time at this garden as a child. Oh, so nice. Yeah. He had deep roots in the history of the place. Yeah. But because of the influence of gardens in his life, in in his sort of second phase of life, he has taken on a project to reinvigorate a large farm in New Hampshire with uh, a renewed active uh, timber operation and ironworking operation and fiber production and farming and livestock in traditional methods Mm. so that people in the region have a place to go and see how pre-industrial farming was carried out and and what its benefits were. I know the whole world can't go back in time and and live that way, but he talked about the connections between the influences of gardens on his life and and what he hopes people gain from seeing this kind of farming and gardening that he's now carrying out in his personal time in New Hampshire. Yeah. People uh, people were very impressed. I bet. Yeah, I bet. The second lecture is Lisa Roper from Chanticleer. So you can see we're kind of circling our friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lisa Roper has been gardening uh, the dry garden at Chanticleer, which is a similar size and scope garden to Wave Hill 
for about 20 years. And she is going to tell us about how that garden has changed over the years and and how its connections to other gardens have shaped what it is. Nice. And third, we're having Coralie Thomas, who was an intern here four years ago, then went to Chanticleer, and then earned a scholarship to work at Great Dixter in in England for a year, and has since then been working as a full-time gardener at Great Dixter. And so uh, from from being uh, a college student in Canada to being an intern at Wave Hill to a gardener in Philadelphia to a gardener in England, uh, I think she is 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 going to explain uh, from a, a young gardener's perspective uh, that the sort of learning curve and the transitions she, she has been through and the revelations she's seen in that short but rich yeah. experience of the last five years. Yeah. And the date of the final lecture is? March 20th, and the February talk is also on the 20th. And do you have any sort of follow-up components to the lectures that people could find online, or is it pretty much an in-person experience only? It's been an in-person experience only. We have explored finding ways to to get parts of the lecture onto our website, but our website uh, is due for a, a rebirth. But at the moment, it doesn't include uh, video or mm-hmm. or lecture clips yet. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the the history, well, give us a little bit of the history of the lecture series because it's a fairly well-known and uh, highly respected lecture series each year. And when when was the lecture series started as an idea and when did it become an annual element to the to the garden's offerings? Well, you you flatter our series a, a bit because I have to say we always feel as though it is it is a sort of tightly held community secret. <laughs> <laughs> and you make it sound uh, so much more respected, but it, it does have some history. So I'll tell you, it started pri- re- really uh, in 1981 when our founding director of horticulture, Marco Polistefano invited Rosemary Veery to speak. Mm. She had planned a visit because uh, several of of England's respected gardens gave Marco great inspiration in making this garden what it, it became, and, and they became friends. And so he convinced her to do a lecture for Wave Hill in 1981. And so for a couple of years, there were small presentations, not a series of three, but, um, but by 10 years, uh, of intermittent talks, it hit a stride of three talks, one mid January, one mid February and one mid March. And it has remained that way since 1991. Mm. And I think that almost with without exception all of the speakers famous or or simply local c- celebrities have been asked whatever their expertise to include some personal gardening experience mm-hmm. so we we often have scientists or or experts in some particular field of horticulture speak but we also we also like them to bring it down to a personal level how does that how does that professional experience translate to what they do in their own garden mm-hmm. and i think it has given an intimacy to our lectures winter lecture series that matches the intimacy of our gardens mm-hmm. and i would say that is the basis of why it is so well loved within the horticultural world and gardening circles of it's it's become i think at least from my experience one of these 
kind of bucket list destinations to try and get to at some point because of this sense of connection and which is at the basis of your very mission and that it's not huge and it's not overblown, but it is deep and personal horticultural sharing at its at its very best. And it's at a time of year, I think, as well, where gardeners are they are, you know, perusing plant catalogs. They are getting ready to go to garden shows to kind of get them through the, the the longest part of winter. And this is the time of year when we have so much kind of compost and fodder on an intellectual level to feed us as gardeners as we go off into the growing season and hopefully expand and ripple out to more and more people each each year, each season. You're right about all of that. I also ask the speakers all to have some enticing pictures because we really need it this time of year. <laughs> certainly, certainly in New York. I mean, it was, we were, we have, you know, minus double digit uh, wind chill today. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> standing in our palm house with South African bulbs blooming or in a lecture hall with some wonderful pictures of spring and summer is, is really a necessary escape. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is balm for sure. <laughs> and so I want to I want to end up, Louis, with appealing to you and your personal history and and work in this world and your own pathway of of learning and and growing yourself, especially in this public gardening sphere where there is there is great accessibility by anyone who wants to take advantage of it. Tell us a little bit about why, to you personally, this is such an important thing in our world at this time. It it feels critical. uh, It's a critical time for us to have a connection to the earth because, as I've heard repeated in in so many different ways from different people, we protect what we love. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get to love the plants and the earth that sustain us is to, to get to know them. Um, and and so that's why I, I think more and more I and my gardeners and and the rest of of the staff at Wave Hill see our garden as a way to connect to people that is more and more important. It's not it's not just a scientific institution. It's not a it's it's not a didactic place it is a place that allows people to take their time to take in things as slowly or as or as rapidly as they like they can sit on the lawn for a, a whole day at a time and just watch the sky and the river go by and eventually i think that has an effect mm-hmm. uh, escaping from the city uh, and if that gets them off their chair and wandering around the gardens then they have another level of of wondering about these incredible plants that that uh, support us on this planet is there anything else you would like to add <laughs> well I grew up gardening and thought I would get away from it but I just couldn't stop <laughs> <laughs> once the plants get us they keep us they do they definitely so, do so I hope that happens to other people too. Me too. Uh, Me too. That once they walk around the garden and are are enticed to to touching a plant or growing a plant or trying to start one from seed rather than always turning to the nursery for a potted tray of a tray of of annuals for their window box that they form a deeper relationship and a greater appreciation. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure, too. 
Louis Bauer is the Senior Director of Horticulture at Wave Hill, a public house and garden in New York City's The Bronx. He joined us today via Skype from Wave Hill to share more about the educational offerings and the importance of this kind of work by cultural institutions around the country. Wave Hill's annual winter three-part lecture series is underway now. As I mentioned, I find gardeners and naturalists to be remarkably ardent, self-directed, lifelong learners and doers. How people learn and where and why, their motivation to learn, whether that be more about a particular subject, a plant family, or a whole new garden skill, where and how this is sparked is something I find fascinating. Some of us learn best by example as apprentices or students in practicums. Other of us learn by reading and research and then trial and error. Still others of us learn by teaching and others learn by listening and thinking and then trying. Whatever way you learn best, I wanna encourage all of us to follow your internal inclinations and curiosities and dig in for yourselves. Attend the lecture, check out that book from the library, or attend that class at your local nursery or botanical garden. Sign up for a symposium and gather with your planty people. It's a healthy dose of winter chlorophyll supplement we all benefit from. What's your best learning method? And what do you have lined up in the way of continuing education this winter season? Let us know by sending us a note cultivatingplace at gmail.com, or make a comment on the weekly social media posts at Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to hear and to share your thoughts forward. And join us again next week as these conversations continue and we visit with Nancy Goldman of the Hardy Plant Society in Portland, Oregon. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Wave Hill, their gardens and programs, see this week's show notes at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Together, we make a difference. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.